Wash your hands, wear a mask, keep your distance. These are all things we are doing during the coronavirus pandemic to keep us, our families, and each other safe. But we're also signing up for more streaming services. Kids are learning online, and if you get to work from home, you're spending a lot more time on the internet. But the threats to safety online haven't ceased. If anything, they're getting worse. I'm Dave McIver. I'm Adam Toy, and this is Why. The acceleration of digitization caused by the pandemic makes even more pressing the need to reform our privacy laws. Current federal laws are simply not up to protecting our rights in a digital environment. Those are the words of Canada's Privacy Commissioner Daniel Terrian on October 8th. And that makes sense. With public health orders saying stay home if you can, it seems like we're spending a lot more time online. Let's look at how the threat to online privacy and rights has changed since March. Paula Minikin is the CTO of Spark Engagement and joins us. Thanks for your time, Paula. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Paula, early in October, uh, the Privacy Commissioner of Canada made some remarks in his uh, regarding his annual uh, report to Parliament and highlighted some of how this coronavirus pandemic has been affecting tech and also privacy uh, issues. Uh, wondering, first of all, if what your thoughts were uh, when those those uh, when those statements came out. Well, I think all of them are are correct. the The challenge with COVID is it hasn't actually told us anything we didn't know. What it's done is accelerate everything and and really emphasize and highlight things because most of these things already existed. But now that you have so many people working from home, and even those that aren't, our world has gone almost, well, it's gone virtual in every way possible, even even doctor's appointments and mm-hmm. teaching, everything is happening online. And this has just really laid bare and put into sharp relief the challenges we already had, um, and really shown those those key changes we need to get made as soon as possible. Right. And as you alluded to, much more of our lives are online. If you're working from home or you've got kids going to school from home, or if you're unable to go out to your favorite bar or restaurant, you may be staying home, dining in, watching some sort of streaming service, all from online. I wonder how Canada's legislation, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, an act that protects Canadians' privacy online, how does that compare to other countries? The Privacy Commissioner has an infographic that compares Canada to other countries in terms of things like you know, defining privacy as a human right, allowing for rulemaking authorities, demonstrating accountability and order, uh, and, and order-making powers, uh, administrative monetary princip- penalties, and private rights to action. What are your thoughts on PIPEDA and how it compares to other laws around the world? There's, there's a couple of aspects that are really important, and all of that does sound like legalese. But at the end of the day, if I was trying to pull this up to 50,000 feet and say, what's the, the crux of it? The crux of it is that while we have this legislation, it's not enforceable. And so because it's so difficult for a person, um, can I use you as an example? Let's Absolutely. just say you. Go, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> so let's say um, you have had a, a, a personal privacy violation and you go after a big company like Facebook. In most other countries, if you went to your privacy commissioner and you said, this is what Facebook did to me, they can look at it, assess it, rule on it, and administer a financial penalty. And that happens. In Canada, 
even the federal government is swallowing and taking a minute because when the privacy commissioner says, yes, Facebook, you've broken the rules, you violated privacy, and you're wrong, in Canada, that's just the beginning. Now you have to actually get the money together to hire a lawyer and take them to court. And if you lose, you have to pay their expenses. So because of the way our legislation is written, it's not who's right or wrong, it's who has the deepest pockets. And given the way the internet works and that these are large companies all over the world, most Canadians, while they have these rights, they don't have the resources to defend them or protect them. And this is where our legislation falls very short. Yeah, it's funny. If I were to, say, take Facebook to court, Facebook's market capitalization is in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And trust me, my bank account is nowhere near that. So the stark contrast of resources between an individual and a social media company is a a chasm. Even if you have a class action, we're at the point now where even class actions, I don't know many law firms. You know, typically they take them on on contingency or class action. Mm-hmm. I don't know many law firms that would be game to take on that kind of risk and liability. So it, although the law is there, it's it's a de facto and an unenforceable. And that's the challenge. Yes. As, as, the, as some of these companies uh, become as powerful as nation states. Um, you, you mentioned personal privacy violations. I'm wondering if... if um, if you can provide some examples of what that looks like, would that be, uh, you know, um, passwords leak or would that be like personal banking information leaked? Uh, what what would those privacy, what's, what's, what are some examples of privacy violations? Well, they can be those things, but they can, I mean, it can also be photos. Um, and, and we're seeing more of that where people store their, their photographs online and in a sh- and it's not necessarily even posting them to a Facebook, but if someone finds a photo of you, and we've had a number of issues lately with um, artificial intelligence and facial recognition. So someone's got a photo of you, it's stored on a shared drive somewhere, that shared drive, um, I mean, how do you back your photos up to um, iCloud or Amazon Web Services or Google. I'm going to name them all so that you're not, I'm not giving it away. <laughs> but I'm sure your photos are backed up somewhere because none of us wants to lose those. So now all of a sudden, if they've got one photo of you uh, and they've used artificial intelli- intelligence to identify it, somehow they get access to your photos, then you are open to blackmail, um, open to, uh, well, all kinds of threats. And that that's a real privacy violation. Whether or not they exercise those or demand something from you, it's still your privacy. And I think um, in addition to that, we also have, you know, there's two sides to this whole free speech thing. Mm-hmm. You, you need to be able to have thoughts and share the thoughts you want and not have private thoughts that you shared uh, independently as you work out your stance and you change your thoughts on, on any particular topic, then be shared and used against you. So it's not just financial. It's, it's really the fundamental human right to privacy, which you really see protected in things like the Europeans GDPR. And I would really like to see uh, 
legislation much more like that exercised in Canada. There's, if I recall correctly, a, a function of the GDPR that allows um, people to request that their personal data be taken off of a social media platform. Do I recall that correctly? Yes. Well, you have the right to be forgotten, and it's not just That's social it. media. And that, that just comes above and beyond this discussion. To me, this comes to the crux of what's causing so many of the problems we see in the world right now. If I think something and I talk about someone, I talk about it with someone on social media, and they actually educate me and I change my mind, which, you know, that's how the world's supposed to work. If I do change my mind, I need to be able to, to trust that they're not going to bring up something I said before or that I was associated with before and use that against me. And that's part of the right to be forgotten. So it's not even, you're saying that, okay, that was 15 years ago, I'm a different person now, you need to have that right. Otherwise, my goodness, if we're, if we're tagged with the rights and beliefs and thoughts we have when you're legally allowed to be on Facebook at 13 and you're never allowed to evolve, well, we're not going anywhere good. The Privacy Commissioner, in his comments earlier this month, mentioned two examples, telemedicine and e-learning platforms. Let's address the e-learning platforms right now, because there are, as of September, probably tens of thousands of students across the country who are learning online. What are some ways that some of those students' sensitive information could be captured and could be used? When and how can that be prevented? And what are some best practices to prevent having some sort of that information leak out? Well, I think there are, again, as with most things, I don't know if you know the stats, um, because I work in this field, I do, but more than 90% of cybersecurity cybersecurity breaches are caused by human behavior and they're unintentional. It's Mm -hmm. where, you know, we're, we're so Canadian and we're always nice and we let people in and ask later why they were there. Um, or, you know, you pick up a USB stick and you put it in your computer to see what's on it so you can return the pictures to someone and any <laughs> of those things. That happens a lot more than you think. Mm-hmm. Any of those things are what cause most breaches. In the case of students, part of the challenge is that, especially if it's recorded, um, first of all, students are aware that it's recorded. Our, the, the kids are much more aware than we are that everything is recorded. So it may actually hold back their learning. So above and beyond the cybersecurity, it starts with the threat. So if you and I are having a discussion and we're talking about something important and you want to know what my thoughts are as part of the class, I might hold back my thoughts if I'm afraid that it's going to be recorded and played somewhere. So it does affect learning right away. Just the threat of cybersecurity affects learning. Beyond that, we, we have all these rules about what can be stored and shared and published published in the media about young offenders, for example. But we don't have any rules about students sharing um, any of the, the way that they're learning, any of their information, any of their marks, anything, anything that they say or think or explore. And you know, we need to tighten that up a whole lot. Because it, it was one thing when they were doing it voluntarily. It's quite another if they're doing it as part of school. And as part of school, sometimes you're asked to act things out. Um, I'm taking a, uh, an adult German class just to keep up with my German. Mm-hmm. And as part of that class, we were asked to assume the role of uh, someone who worked with their hands, living in a world where there had been a major catastrophe and we had no technology to speak of. So in that role, I speak, you know, a lot about 
beliefs and things I'm supposed to be doing, which, you know, believe it or not, I chose to be a hairdresser because I figured that was there being no electronic communications. That way I could be, I know more of what was going on in the world. Um, (laughs) And how would anybody who doesn't know me know when they watched that video of that Zoom call that I was speaking as a, uh, in, in, in a role versus being myself. And I think this happens a lot. Uh, and I think, you know, in educational platform, that's an issue. I think as well, you have to be the freedom to make mistakes and to learn. Um, if you're concerned that everything is going to be saved, other people are going to see it, um, that those marks will, will live with you for the rest of your life, you're going to be a lot more tentative. So I think those are some of the issues. Uh, but they're not all of them. I find it interesting that that uh, you you're highlighting that it can both um, infringe on a person's privacy as far as their identity uh, and uh, and and everything that's around surrounding that, but also the fact that this can be uh, an impediment to their learning process because learning is a process. Um, I, I find that fascinating, and and that's something that. Um, the privacy commissioner didn't really highlight in his address. The other, but one other thing that he did uh, address was was telemedicine. Uh, I mean, at the the height of the first wave of the pandemic, you saw some stories of of doctors uh, using you know virtual uh, medicine with basically uh, you know a tablet on a, a bit of a robot that it you know navigates around and is able to see some of their uh, patients without direct exposure which is great in a, in a time of a pandemic but um as a privacy commissioner says here that you know telemedicine can create um confidentiality issues uh when the way that the the patient and the doctor are connecting is via commercial enterprises does canada have any sort of legal framework to address that right now or is it still uh, or are we, you know, using, you know, 20th century uh, legislation to, to apply to 21st century technology? So I'm, can I answer that question in two parts? Absolutely. <laughs> so first of all, um, I'm a big fan of telemedicine, and we have that now in Nova Scotia, and I think it's the best thing since sliced bread for a lot of reasons in terms of uh, limiting people's exposure and traveling and all of those things that would expose them to an actual virus. And in many cases, it's just better all around. Mm -hmm. If you just need a simple uh, prescription refill to not go into a doctor's office and potentially expose yourself to, you know, whatever virus, uh, be it COVID or something else that's around. I think it's a good thing. Part B of that is, is twofold. If you go into, and certainly here right now in Nova Scotia, I'm going to speak from this, this perspective, um, I can walk into a, a hospital floor uh, at, at, the ma- at a major hospital, and as long as I can figure it out, I can go grab a binder and read everything there is to know about a, a patient because they're in binders. They're in charts, physical charts, mm-hmm. and no one will know that I've seen it. If I look at the chart of someone on a registered platform, I can do it if I have a password, but there will be footprints. So it's traceable. And we've had a number of those lawsuits in Canada. I think the first one was actually in Newfoundland. There's been several in Nova Scotia, but they've been right across the country where there's been privacy breaches, um, which have been perpetrated by employees of the various health authorities. So we have this sort of trailing 
in which case the electronic is better mm. because a person could go in and see a physical chart and you'll never know that they saw it. But in the electronic, you can at least do it after the fact. The place where we're not that I feel would be much better, it should be that they're licensed. So if you want to uh, provide or store medical records, rather than us being in this place where we're um, playing catch up and trying to, you know, you can prove it later. That's great. I mean, that's like a, it's like a CCTV. That's wonderful for, for catching. Mm-hmm. Um, not the best thing for preventing. Um, although there was a, you know, deterrent effect from them. I think that there needs to be a, a much stronger upfront licensing and protection, particularly of non-governmental private entities that are managing and delivering um, healthcare electronically. Paula, I was wondering if you've had a chance to have a look at the federal contact tracing app, and what are your thoughts about how it approaches privacy and security? So I think the you know, it, it's it's a relative geolocation service. So it, it basically is recording how close you are to everybody else that pings off a similar tower. So it's not necessarily recording where you are; it's recording where you are relative to anyone else. And yes, could you? reverse engineer that and and yeah, you could. Um, I think it's actually very well done. I think uh, it purges every, I want to say 15 days, but don't quote me on that. Um, And I checked with a couple of friends of mine, most notably uh, David Fraser, who has privacylaw.ca. And uh, all of them agreed that it's a good app. It's well done. The privacy is fairly secure. And um, I guess to show a little leadership, I, for one, installed it, and I know the rest of them did. Do you have some general tips for people to use in regards to their cybersecurity every day, Paula? I think changing your passwords and not having the same password for everything is is number one. It's good to have a a way that you know that you're calculating them. So rather than just say, I'm going to change my password from dog to cat today, Come up with something that works for you. I, I have a friend who's a big hockey fan. He has a mix of player's name, team name, shirt number, and birth year of the uh, the hockey player that he has that's coordinated to the months of the year, and he switches so that he knows. If he forgets, he can say, well, it was September. That must have been that it, I was... Uh, working with the Sharks at that time. (laughs) And my favorite player on that team is this person. His shirt number is this, and his birth year is that. This is Why is produced by me, Dave McIver, and Adam Toy. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and we'll see you soon.